Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Lauren Duca. Her new book is How to Start a Revolution, Young People and the Future of American Politics. Journalist Lauren Duca has become a fresh and authoritative voice on the experience of millennials in today's society. In these pages, she explores the post-Trump political awakening and lays the groundwork for a re-democratizing moment as it might be built out of the untapped potential of young people. In this book, she investigates and explains the issues at the root of our ailing political system and reimagines what an equitable democracy would actually look like. It begins with young people getting involved. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Lauren Duca. Lauren, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So you had a kind of meteoric, 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 Meteoric is the word I'm looking for. Meteoric rise to sort of public. A meteoric media rise, yeah. <laughs> meteoric media rise. And, you know, it's really interesting because you were on Tucker Carlson uh, and he said something like it was a really, I mean, it's all over YouTube, right? People can Google your name and Tucker Carlson. But he said something's interesting. Like he's like a stick to the thigh high boots writing because you were writing for Teen Vogue at the time. And you're like, people can care about thigh high boots and politics, Tucker. Like they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. <laughs> do you feel, do you wish you got asked about thigh high boots more? I mean, do people still ask you, like, cause this is what I was thinking, like, gosh, I, like we could talk about fat. I mean, you know, like, I mean, you're fashion, very fashionably dressed. I mean, do you, <laughs> I, I mean, you, you seem pretty like hip and, 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 and you're a student of culture. And, and I mean, do you, in your sort of, you know, if you've written a book, how to start a revolution, you become sort of a, a, a political voice for, a generation of activists, but do you, do you miss kind of uh, being fashion voice sometimes? <laughs> well, in the before times, uh, before Trump won, I was most interested in writing about culture, uh, more so entertainment than fashion, but just pop culture in general. That was my big dream was to be a pop culture anthropologist, as I so annoyingly put it. Um, I why, why do you think that's annoying? I mean, that doesn't sound annoying. <laughs> well, I think that the thing that annoys me about it in retrospect is because it is emblematic of the kind of abstract, uh, out-of-touch way that I was engaging with culture. And I thought of myself as an outspoken feminist, and I was interested in the grand goal of equality, I didn't understand my political agency. And when when Trump won, I had this awakening moment and decided to shoot my shot, figuring out how I could write about politics. And I wrote, wrote this book proposal, uh, building off my reporting and research as a culture writer saying, how, how do we get to this dumpster fire? What might be a way forward? And the sample chapter was called Donald Trump is Gaslighting America and went massively viral. And so what was... And before this, you you had been solicited to write a piece. You wrote the piece, right? Like what it means that we have a first female president. Like everyone was sure that Hillary was going to win. And so you, you were sure. And it was going to yeah. kind of be, okay, this is, I mean, you know, all right, yeah, equality... 
a, a sort of feather in my feminist writing cap and I'm moving on to doing other stuff. Like, I mean, you, you did not imagine that this would be a watershed moment. No, I was convinced that Hillary was going to win and that was very much in keeping with my idea of this kind of neoliberal fantasy path toward progress where you have Barack Obama as president and the gays are getting married and, and then we had a woman being president. And, and so for, even the though... The neoliberal thing means first like, hey, like... And we're shrinking government, the market capitalism, you know, we, we, we keep it, you keep, people just get more and more equal and the market and stock market will get better and better and free markets and free people and everything's just going to get better and better inevitably, right? There's that, by neoliberal fantasy, that's kind of what you're saying, right? There's a story that progress is inevitable with, with, with markets and, you know, the capitalists and the politics all working together. And an outward facing aesthetics of equality. Um, with no real remedy for structural institutional oppression. I think that I didn't understand the extent of my role in the status quo. I, I understood to some degree that we are in a white supremacist patriarchy um, and yet felt as if I was a passive bystander to that as the reality of the culture and to the government that dictated the laws that overlay on that hierarchy. And when I had this click of agency, it became impossible for me to do that other kind of writing. I would love to get back to it someday. And I would love to, I think, uh, be, be able to, um, be in a, in a less, a, a less dramatic dumpster fire moment like in in the future but I, I to me it feels as if everything is so on fire and that the the way i need to be continuing to use my voice is um to empower people with information and to help people make sense of this moment so i i really think of myself as a great communicator i like to break things down and i like to make things accessible and hopefully entertaining and i feel like there's that that's really missing i feel i'm 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 a smart person and i thought of myself as a good person before i had this political awakening and and now what i understand is that if you're not constantly and routinely participating in the question of how we live together um, by raising your voice politically, and that can mean a lot of things, and we'll get to it, then, then you can't possibly be a good person. You have this sentence you wrote like in the book that I love. I, I, I put it in my like five sentences I wish I would have written. You said, democracy is not a self-cleaning uh, kitty litter box. Which is so <laughs> great, because I think a lot of people just think, well, you know, it's interesting, like after, um, it recently, a couple years ago, there was a study or survey that said like, 40% or 50% of millennials didn't think it was that important to live in a liberal democracy or something. Cause it's just, we take it for granted, right? That things yeah. are just, you know, Oh, it's going to, things are going to get better and better and more equal and more progressive and more open and more freedoms. And that's not automatic. I mean, cultures, do U-turns. Like, I mean, it's completely wild that we even think we're free in this country. That's the thing is that there's this this widespread cultural idea of aggressive patriotism based on the idea that we have the more, most morally superior form of government, except democracy is not in any way evidenced by any person's lived experience. And I think like the majority of people uh, e with even a basic working of understanding of civics still will, t will say things 
like that's the way it works in Washington, right? Or we're, we're all well aware, right, that there's majority public opinion wanting solutions on climate crisis, gun reform, healthcare, and those things we just can't get done. You know, the, the idea that there is a system that is not actually responding to our voices and elected officials that are operating out of allegiance to their party and, and not working to expand the electorate or be responsive to the Florence of constituents is happening in broad daylight is the stuff of oligarchy and yet goes on in tandem with routine firework celebrations on the 4th of July. Yeah, you say something in the book. You're like, look, of course our voices individually uh, can't stir the whole ship. But collectively, I mean, William James, I think, I, I forget where he writes this, but he talks about how if, he's writing this in the 19th century, talking about like train robberies. He's like, if everyone knew, if every train robber knew that once they pulled the gun out, everyone would rush them. There'd be no more train robberies. But we'd all have to collectively that's the thing. We'd all have to agree on it. Like, like, you know, that everybody was going to bum rush the, 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 the assailant, you know, the robber, then they wouldn't happen anymore. But that's the problem. How do we get that consensus of, yeah, I mean, I feel like that's what you're talking about. Like, Hey, we can, we can have a sort of collective sense of we can do, we can, we can act. Uh, we have more power than we think we do. I mean, is that something like what you're arguing in the book, how to start a revolution that basically there's more revolutionary power in citizenry than we think there is. Yes, and that, I mean that's that's a great analogy. I think I compared in the book to the bystander effect, and in the, the, we have this idea that that someone is going to come and save us. That the, the guardrails of democracy will be sort of automatically enforced by the people in charge, by our political and media gatekeepers. I I it's I make the case that we each need to have this daily discipline of democratic habits, while also being quite clear about the cynical reality that that is being introduced into because our, the, the system as it stands is so caught up in moneyed interests, um, and so disinterested in the majority of the American public that, that our individual voices are statistically non-significant. And so, and, and there is no effort by our elected officials to make democracy more accessible and inviting and to expand, um, the, the, their voter base to, to actually meaningfully represent the full scope of people who, who voted, not only voted for them, but who, who are represented by their district. I mean, these kinds of things are just not happening. There's just no work to bring voters into the fold. And what we instead see is voter suppression and gerrymandering and a geographically biased electoral system and 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 the reasons to not vote the reasons to feel as if your voice doesn't matter are oppressive but the 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 fact that the system is that way um is also the reason the that that we all must take apart and and insist on participating in the collective impact that will return the wealth and power of this nation to the hands of the people yeah you talk about a book I, I forget who the authors who wrote it, but study of the two party system. It's about Freakonomics and all these, how basically in most market driven systems, you know, the, the two, the two like Coke and Pepsi kind of thing is advantageous or whatever. But, but that's because people are really happy with Coke and Pepsi, right? You know, and if they become unhappy with, you know, whatever that, but in America, like, no one's happy with both parties, but they have this hegemony. Like it, it people, it's not like, yeah, we love Coke and Pepsi. Like, Nobody's like, hey, the party's doing a great job. Like, this is awesome. But strangely, in, in the American political system, that does not, like, you know, the Freakonomics kind of show that's talked about these authors' work has said, like, 
you know, in any other thing, this would this thing would break apart and spurn a whole new industry, but not in American politics. No, and so the I first discovered the term the political industrial complex from this Harvard Business Review paper, which basically breaks it all down in terms of the duopoly of the Democratic and Republican parties, which are competing against one another to kind of artificially just differentiate one another in the mind of the voter. And what we get is this situation where we're voting for a lesser of two evils. But beyond that, it's also this interconnected set of entities that allows that cooperation to persist and to be acceptable um, to, to voters who are not being catered to as political customers of this industry because the high power customers of corporate interests and if any voters at all, the few older white folks who show up to vote, the, the, the system is actually not responding to the will of the public in any kind of meaningful way. And so that's, that's the, the, the political industrial complex in, is, in basically the ultimate industrial complex, you know, like one industrial complex to rule them all. And yet the, that I found the term has almost barely been used at all. I mean, the, it was referenced in, in the paper. They said it was two academic papers, once in the Wall Street Journal. I've since had a sassy podcast host tell me let Nexus Search showed up 300 references. Still not a meaningful amount. Yeah, I mean. And I think that, you know, I... I have somebody calls me a sassy podcast <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, it's not this term, this idea of the political industrial complex. I I think it it really is essential to understanding the force of the system that we're up against where we we don't we, we it is acceptable for elected officials to be operating out of allegiance to their party um, rather than the full range of constituents. And then the way in which that is covered, I think that's probably the part that I'm most interested in, the way that that is covered and, and maintained as acceptable. I mean, like you even have in regard to impeachment, the New York Times will write, oh, we need 20 Republicans, Democrats need 20 Republicans to vote to impeach and observers are saying it won't happen. And it's, if, 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 if you're telling me that we have elected officials who have preformed opinions based solely in allegiance to party that's baldly anti-democratic and needs to be stated as such. And it's just, it's completely, um, we, we have absolutely no pretense actually of even having a public voice. Yeah. I remember the show newsroom that was on HBO and they, they talked about like, uh, Will McAvoy, the main character is this sort of centrist media guy, but he says the media is biased towards fairness. And like, how can you be biased towards fairness? There's two sides to every story. And he's like, no, there's not. Sometimes there's 13 sides. Sometimes there's one side, <laughs> like, you know, like, and the, but this is sort of like, you know, so he, he says, you know, if the, if the, uh, Republicans, you know, that's the analogy, passed a resolution that the earth is flat, the New York Times would lead with Congress divided over shape of earth. <laughs> I mean, I mean, but, but this, yeah. this bias towards others, oh, two sides to every story. Kind of like, so, so then the false equivalence, like everything becomes, ah, oh, well, there's two sides, you know, it, it, it's like the post-truth culture, right? I mean, yeah, I mean the the both sidesism I think is is a compounding element of this binary processing where there is a a, a cowardice, a level of cowardice in the mainstream media, um, where there's even just equivocation around using the term liar to refer to the president right, right, or racist they, to refer to the president. Yeah, and this is not on on NPR. I mean, like NPR will say, like, hey, yeah, you know, we we don't want to say lie because we don't know about motive, and you know, we maybe it was distort, maybe it was not factual, but we, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, we, I, I get it. Like, hey, like we want journalists to be descriptive, you know, and not prescriptive. But, but you're right. Like, at what point does this become prescriptive? Well, I think that that is 
is cowardice, laziness, and look, there's a lot of it's it's all it's not a, a it's it's a it's a media ecosystem that's strapped for resources, and there's a lot of different factors at play. But we have the receipts to call him a racist. Trump announced his campaign by declaring that Mexicans are rapists. There you go. That's enough evidence. And as far as the word lie goes, well, if the president is stating false information that is provably false and you don't know what his intention was, then you need to explore the context that the president of the United States is not working off of accurate information or is mentally unfit or is having conversation with a hallucination of a pumpkin or like whatever the case may be. He's saying false statements to the American people. And there's there's more of a fuss over whether to con- condemn that as a lie. And it's about, I think, the appearance of fairness. And that, that's like that's a really critical thing is, is fairness is actually not a journalistic method. Um, and if, if, if journalism is meant to have fairness, it's fairness to citizens. The method is, is, is having objectivity of method, of verification. And so often it's, it's so easy to just cast things into the he said, she said format or the one one side versus the other format, but like the, the example with the flat Earth and and, and and even you know better classical journalism ones is in the climate crisis debate. Is it a, a fair debate on climate crisis? The climate crisis is just forty nine scientists and one crazy person. Um, and I think you know there's been this there's this warping of the truth through this this appearance of objectivity that is not actually a journalistic method and um, it creates more distortion much of the time. You, it's interesting because you have become this sort of communicator, citizen, activist. I wonder, do you, you know, I, I've gotten to know through the podcasting world some sort of never Trump kind of center right podcasters and who are very thoughtful. I mean, commentary and, you know, David French, who's been on the podcast a few times. I mean, you know, I politically are in probably pretty different places, but we both identify as Christians, but uh, politically we just stand in very different places. But, you know, I, I, there's, I feel like the, the sort of online kind of media, New media has created spaces for some thoughtful, thoughtful um, conversation partners. Have you met people right of center that are saying sort of the same things you are that are like calling for more citizen active awareness among younger people? I mean, is, is or is this? I mean, I'm, I'm interested. Are there parallel conversations on a different political geography that you found? Well, uh, no, I. But I also think. You know, I don't identify as being on the left. I mean, you you know, you could factor it. You could factor my views into to whatever label you're comfortable with. But I think of myself as advocating for equitable public power, and I express my personal beliefs. But I, I think that I'm making the argument that until each and every person in this country is on equal political footing, we don't have true freedom. And I mean, I think that there, that, that my, my goal is not to tell people what to believe, but I think that our shared goal and the one side in journalism and for elected officials should be increasing that, um, that equal political footing and, and building towards that equitable public power. I don't know. Um, I don't know how the mission toward equity fits really neatly into uh, the 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 idea of a binary of left and right. I'm sort of confused as to what the Republican Party would like to market itself to be right now, or like what even broader never Trumper conservatism is. I'm, but I I think that I'm not really interested in 
um, getting into the nitty gritty on specific policy positions as much as insisting on uh, the necessity of public will uh, having an impact on the policies that shape American life and insisting on um, bringing, creating, creating this equitable public power. My interest is in empowering as many people as possible, ideally young people and ideally young women to, to insist on their right and duty to the public, to, to the conversation. And I think, you know, I'm not interested in making converts for, for people who, who are active and believe something different than me as much as I am just getting people involved who felt no right to it before. Some of that too, do you think like, I mean, you've said like we have like sizable majorities that believe in sensible gun control, sensible, sensible environmental policy. I mean, it's part of your conviction, like, Hey, if we just got more people enfranchised, we'd have better public policies because just because people want clean water, they want uh, they don't want to get shot. They 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 want a planet for their kids. Like, it, 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 do you have some faith? Like, if we could broaden out the power base and 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 enfranchise more people, that we'd actually get better public policy. Yes, I mean, I think I think that the that this is shifting. I think it's in really early painful stages right now. But the reason why I'm so interested in this as it applies to young people and the reason I think that there is so much potential among young people is I I began this work looking at this myth of of youth apathy, which is stated basically as a natural extension of low voter turnout. But but if we're actually looking at demographic characteristics, there is this do-gooder instinct that is indicative of young people wanting to leave the world a better place than they found it, wanting to have meaningful impact with their careers. Just being drawn to volunteering over voting. I mean, it's amazing, right? Like, yeah, well, there's really low youth voter turnout, but we're also volunteering in historic numbers. And guess what takes way more energy than voting? And so now this awakening is happening. And the, the, the awakening is, is this shift, um, that we can also talk about at demographic scale. So when I was going through my book, I, I interviewed all these exceptional examples, and I'll maybe share some. But but the probably most exciting part was when I realized I could talk about it in terms of 80 million millennials plus, in terms of this behavioral change, this relationship to politics that moved from passively navigating a broken system to actively seeking to change it. And I think if that sense of political agency is hooked up to this generational do-gooder instinct, that there's there, the, the structural changes that can be provided for the next generation will fundamentally reshape how we think or could reshape how we think of citizenship and that we need to think of it as a constant daily habit in which being a good person and being a good citizen are one and the same. Yeah, and that's the key thing with agency because I feel like what, what oftentimes, you know, when we feel like objects and not subjects, right, we feel like cogs and machines, the economic machine, the political machine. I, I love the term the political industrial complex. I mean, it's playing off of Eisenhower, right? No, no pacifist liberal. I mean, this is the guy that helped win World War II was leaving office warning about the military industrial complex and how it's going to take over. I mean, this guy saw it firsthand and that's, and, and that's the thing when these complexes take over, right? They make us part of the way that they stay empowered is they, by making the citizen feel disempowered, you're arguing, right? So like mm-hmm. that's once they make you feel disempowered, like an object, not a subject, they've done the, you know, they've done their job. Yes. Well, so, and so I looked at the, I discovered the term political industrial complex in this Harvard Business School paper that unpacks the duopoly of the two parties. Did we talk about that on this recording? <laughs> no, uh, <laughs> I think, no, I think we did. It's funny because we did like 15 killer minutes, which I wish we had, but, uh, well, but we, uh, the card was full. So we had to restart. I, did I do that? No, did I think I we'd already just talked about it uh, on Freakonomics. Okay. Well, well, so I was in it, in addition to this that that structural. Yes. Okay. So great. You'll remember before in this recording. 
Um, <laughs> this idea of the duopoly and the kind of structural understanding of the industrial complex. I also expand and encourage people to think of it in terms of this force that extends as a soft cultural power and stigma, especially through the hierarchy of the white supremacist patriarchy, by which there are these bizarre secret rules that characterize expertise and um, they're all made up. And so, you know, on, on Tucker Carlson, he tells me, stick to the thigh-high boots. You're better at that saying, oh, for Teen Vogue, you wrote about fashion, you wrote about culture. Stick to those non-serious interests. And the idea that feminized non-serious interests could be disqualifiers of intelligence in the moment, totally shocking for my thinking in terms of this book, a massive gift, because it really explicitly cracks open the the total arbitrary uh, white supremacist nonsense by which golf is <laughs> is this authoritative activity and nail art or high high boots are to be dismissed and seen as actually disqualifying i think that those For the record i play golf and i like thigh high boots i, I want to say I like i think <laughs> both talk to me like... when you play golf in thigh high boots you like... <laughs> would have to be spike i mean spikeless well, well, they do have spikeless shoes. Maybe, maybe they can have spikeless thigh hybrid. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Ken Skillman, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Sari Graham, Peter Steigerwald, Jennifer Spate, Ben DeHart, Joel Wentz, Jordan DeMice, Samantha Conower, Simone Garabedian, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Press, Stephen Rowe, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jody Stevenson, Andrew Stravitz, Glenn Stalsner, Greg Johnson, and Kai Wintenig. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. But what I, I guess the, the key the key thing I think is 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 questioning where we we are fed all of these stories about how government operates about who is should have a a, a voice uh, who should be taken seriously and I I think that the the, the this mode of of constant citizenship is about is about finding concrete act, actionable ways to raise your voice beyond voting, and it's also about a constant critical thinking and about probing who makes the rules and and also why you think the things you think and the ways in which we box ourselves out of um, a participation that is just kind of like emanated as this like stealthy carbon monoxide by which like we like you know. 
it's as obvious as why was it ever possible to turn on C-SPAN and see only old white men making the laws in this country? Why, why did I not even think to question that at that time? And this is this idea that that's the way things are. And so the, the political industrial complex exists as an industrial complex, as this interconnected set of entities. And we can look at it in these like formal institutionalized ways. And I think for the average person, it also requires this unpacking at this softer level that it shapes and limits and boxes us out um, without even really having to act much force at all. And I think self-censoring. There, there are people probably that react to terms like white supremacy and patriarchy and they're like, oh my gosh, this sounds so ideological. But I think of like on Saturday Night Live, that, that sketch that Black Jeopardy and Tom Hanks plays the sort of Trump supporter. And like, what about the election? And he's like, oh, that's all figured out ahead of time. And, and all the black people <laughs> like, oh, he, he, he's with us. And, but that's interesting because there is this sense in which, you know, you could go to Red State America and talk about the old boys club and talk about that, you know, and, and, and people will have the sense, even if they react to terms like, Oh, I don't like the term white supremacy or patriarchy. This sounds university, but, but they know it's not fair. Right. I mean, like the, yeah. the, the, whether you're in a culturally conservative part of the country or not, people do have the sense that things aren't fair. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a, a vested interest in mocking terms like the white supremacist patriarchy and in, 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 in mocking terms that give access to, to, to people who, to, to, to the average person to kind of understand these things. I mean, I, I, I feel as if some of even the reaction to my book from, from people in New York media is this idea that, 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 that it's, that the political industrial complex is obvious or the concepts of citizenship and how it must be applied is obvious. But they, like, the average person actually doesn't feel as if they have a sense of their time even to form a conviction of opinion. I mean, you, there's this, it's completely overwhelming. We're completely bombarded with this endless conveyor belt of atrocities coming out of the White House. And, and there's so much political writing that's, that's performative for other political writers. And it's, boring and inaccessible and it's not making any effort to reach out to people and I think breaking breaking down the mechanics of power and privilege and oppression especially as it applies to our political system is 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 something that requires um keeping people invested and entertained and and making it so that the, the the goal of the work is to empower people to think for themselves and act for themselves and um i i think that that is conspicuously missing and it's a, it's an abdication of journalistic duty in a lot of cases because the journalist's goal is also to make the significant interesting and so yeah i mean like i i i take being entertaining and and think of myself as funny and and think of that as also like a very serious important part of my work and my journalism is i i want to hook as much attention as possible and get as many people as possible to feel as if they have the foundation of these things that seem like lofty or silly or stigmatized in some other way ideas and and actually feel like they can really mess with them as a as a, as a younger writer right you have like four hundred thousand twitter followers right you must have thought oh my god if i could get to you know hundred thousand twitter followers <laughs> it'd be so great right but on the other side of that kind of notoriety right in public persona like do you miss anonymity at all Oh, being public facing is horrible and excruciating and not something that like the human brain is meant to endure. It's, Do you hate Googling yourself now? I mean, I don't. Google myself, but I, I, I never I, Googled yourself. I do. In, I mean, it, the point is just that I'm constantly, I, I, it's not, it's not something I have to seek out that much. I mean, right. it's kind of a silly question because I'm, I'm interacting with people, interacting with ideas. Uh, about me all the time and and I am not sure what information um that they have about me or or and they 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 have this idea maybe of of a persona that's maybe then also based on their assumptions I think that um people in general 
deal with this, right? Like, who knows? But it's like, like let's like, like take it down to a more concrete thing. You meet someone and maybe they've, they, the story they know about you is that you had a fight in a bar or maybe you meet someone and they're friends with your wife. And so they think you're awesome. And like they, that at the level of having read an article of mine that went viral or having read a hit piece about me, or, you know, it's just, it's a, it's totally, um, it's this grotesque manifestation um, that makes me feel really of of like the disconnect I think and the way that people interact based on assumptions and stories in our own heads um, and it's really very alienating and I and that's kind of awful like to to say like the way that came off you know or someone wrote a hit piece about me like that's a thing like yeah. oh we were you know like that the fact that that's a a thing <laughs> that you have to so casually do without a hit you know that's like that's got to feel like or, or my guess is people probably interact with you on ways on Twitter. They would never interact with you in a room. Most people, right? No. But then they'll take this gross over from a yardy and call it, I mean, I would guess. I mean, like, right? I mean, and the bigger you are, the, the, the worse it gets. Well, yeah, it's profoundly dehumanizing. I mean, I think that, again, all of our interactions online are really dehumanizing and, and we forget uh, the, the, the way that it, it, <laughs> the, 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 the block of the screen, I doesn't just apply to feral trolls sending me death and rape thoughts. I, I mean, there, and, and I think also that it's compounded by this kind of caricature of me that is like this Macy's Day parade float version that's out of my control. And, um, that is been, yeah, dealing with hit pieces, excruciating, devastating. All of it, though, um, ex- like extreme harassment from far-right trolls and hit pieces from my colleagues in New York media, all of it has pushed me to do, have to... Do you to, meet people like that at cocktail parties or something? Like, oh, that's the person who wrote a hit piece about me. Like, I mean, do, do you see those people that have written things like that? Like, do you see them in uh, social circles? I mean... Actually, you know, the author of the most malicious... A hit piece about me lives in the same building as my partner, which is especially odd because my sexuality was totally erased in that piece. So it's pretty weird to be in my uh, and you just queer love recently, in that right? space. Like this year? Or, That's right, in yeah. January. Um, but so the, the thing I was going to say is that it's all pushed me to have to create a really solid sense of self. Um, and I, I did not have that before. So I had this political awakening and was almost immediately catapulted to public figure dumb. And the stress of that, the intensity of that, uh, propelled me to kind of figure out who I am and like, what hills am I going to die on? And in that process, I think the most fundamental thing is that I had to really look inside and realize that I hated myself before. I was taking all of this information um, about how awful and stupid and silly and ridiculous and deserving of death that I was, you know, just receiving in record numbers as proof of some internal rottenness at at least a subconscious level. And, 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 and I think that it's, it's evolved, right? Like the, the stuff that when I initially gaslighting went viral and I went on Tucker and he says, stick to the thigh high boots. You're better at that. He's saying you're too silly and stupid to have a legitimate voice in the political conversation. That was in December of 2016. I have now miraculously as a young woman, I think sustained this platform despite ongoing harassment and, and used the platform to interview hundreds of young people to attempt to create a work that is meant to build equitable public power to empower young people in the political conversation and weird rumors and embarrassing incidents from my past and perceived flaws are, are, are metastasized into these hit pieces 
again, the point of which is to say she's too stupid. She's too silly. She's too ridiculous. I don't, I don't (laughs) understand it because I feel as if we all should be dedicated toward this grander goal of building equity. And it seems to me as if even if even if someone has a problem with the way in which I'm pursuing that goal, that there are a lot more dangerous actors on the national stage deserving of these kinds of takedowns. And that it has really caused um, kind of like a new a new crisis of faith and and a new push for me to solidify um, who who I think I am and 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 what I understand the purpose of my work to be and to insist on my own ability to be flawed and to make mistakes. I think that you know there's this kind of perverse incentive structure where anybody who is, is aspiring toward toward the goal of building equality is is condemned for any flaws relating to having previously inhabited the white supremacist patriarchy. But like, we're working off of this imperfect yeah, landscape. Obama, Obama even said this recently, like, look, you know, don't, he's kind of calling out the call out culture. Like, look, just cause I can get on social media and say, Oh, I found something. I, they use the wrong word or this. And I, you know, and this whole, I mean, it's interesting because we may be a more permissive culture, but we're certainly less forgiving. I mean, it, it, we're the whole kind of call out the thing, you know, this Bill Maher did this thing, like, a couple of months ago, he's saying, "Look, guess what? People evolve. Get over it. Like in our generations from now, they're going to look at things we said that were, that were silly. People change their minds. That's okay. People evolve. Well, right? I mean, and it's like people who are trying in general should be even you know able to slip up with compassion. There's such a punitive." undercurrent in our culture. And I think also just this total misattribution of shame where there's this like endless shaming of purity checking of cancel culture that applies to progressivism. It's like progressivism has to allow for progress. And there has to also be room, of course, for criticism, but healthy, constructive criticism. And this, this, I, I also, you know, there's a lot of people who are still asleep who need to have the inner workings of the white supremacist patriarchy unpacked for them with compassion and with patience. And like, I think that especially applies to, you know, for, for young, for millennial white people who have recently gotten awake reaching out to our boomer parents and be, with compassion and to do that healing work Your parents about. Your told you to vote for Bob Dole in the mock election. <laughs> yeah. So I never forget. I remember the debate. I remember watching the debate with Bill Clinton and it was like, he said, you know, it's not Senator Dole's age. Uh, I have a problem with it. It's the age of his ideas. And I thought, wow, that guy's good. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. You said something a moment ago about this kind of self-loathing in yourself, right? And, and the thigh high boots and the into fashion and the sort of stuff. I mean, do you, do you think that you, before kind of awakening played up a less serious version of yourself to be liked? I mean, to be cool. Like, was there something about in the no? self-loathing? I mean, I, what, what was this? Was what? What do you think was the root of some of the insecurity that before the awakening? That, hmm. that well, I don't think I played up a less serious version of myself. I mean, I think that right now my entire work and presence is an interrogation of seriousness, and I mean that very seriously. I have been told that I should get a vocal coach, and I have been told that I should polish my appearance a little more to to fit into this stock mold of of what is expected as respectable and i've had young women come up to me on college campuses and say you know you were touching your hair and you were saying like an um and i thought why did they bring this woman here to talk to us and then they actually listened to what you had to say and the thing is that it's just i've been socialized the way young women 
have been socialized. And I think that it's meaningful, um, even if they don't agree with everything I say or even even disagree with a lot of it. Just the fact of seeing a young woman have serious political opinions is so conspicuously missing and was conspicuously missing for me. I think that my self-loathing was um, really deep-seated and um, tied to a complex series of factors, including my childhood and uh, other deeper, darker pieces of things that I've been on a journey to unpack. Um, I didn't, I didn't get it. Like I didn't get that I had to self-validate. I I had been told those words. I had been told that I needed to love myself and that I needed to be kinder to myself. And I had an understanding that my uh, brain was like working overtime to cause me misery. I mean, I would just, I, I would just think about killing myself all the time because I was just like, I just hate my brain. Like just felt like I couldn't turn off this grinding machine that was finding all of the the worst possible funhouse mirror reflections of my appearance and my personality. I mean, like it was really horrible to just, just to think about what it was like. It was just horrible to be alive most of the time. And, and you grew up in a pretty affluent sort of you know, yeah. nice neighborhood in New Jersey. I mean, you just, <laughs> you're not in like rural sort of Appalachia or, or, no. or, or, or a decaying city like Newark or something. You, you were, I mean, it, it's interesting. People from privileged backgrounds can have tremendous pain. Tre- tre- tremendous pain. And, and, um, that, that was even actually the, then part of the, the self-hatred. Like I, I felt the tremendous amount of pain, even, you know, I wasn't married and living in this East village apartment and had a job at the Huffington post. And I thought, you know, I had always wanted to live in New York and, and be a writer and it was all happening. And, and I had this very handsome, kind husband. I mean, didn't know I was gay, which is also a part of this raging black hole, um, sexual oppression. But I, I felt like, Oh my God, I have everything, um, <laughs> and I'm miserable, which makes me rotten. And the goalposts always keep moving, right? Like, oh, if you just get the right prom date or get to the right college or get the right apartment. Or get, and, yeah. And then the goals always keep – the goalposts always keep moving. Yes. Well, so the 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 big goal became finishing the book. So so I, I uh, was given this incredible opportunity to really be able to have freedom in pursuing – uh, this idea while touring the country, talking to young people at high schools and colleges and to be able to come up with the, the, the stuff of the book while figuring out how to directly reach my slightly younger peers was such an incredible, incredible experience. It was also very daunting, um, to have no idea how this book was going to come together with this like broad scope idea of young people and do they care? And it, 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 it finally, you know, when it, when it clicked, it clicked and the whole thing kind of downloaded very quickly. Um, so for a very long time, I was just kind of waking up every day, like, like I have to write a book. And, um, I, I, my anxiety so attached itself to the, the completion of the book that then I thought, well, once I write, why don't I finish this? I will be fixed. Like I just, I, it got to this point where like I, I had just run so far away from looking at my trauma and looking at my self hatred and looking at, uh, and, and truly like getting in touch with myself and feeling my pain and releasing it I, that I thought that if I could just accomplish this thing, that I could just then put it directly inside of the black hole in my chest and be saved. And I finished a first draft of the book in that afternoon. That afternoon, my brain was like, okay, like, what's next, bitch? Like, good try. And, <laughs> and, and, and that, that, that is, I think, 
the, the, the most critical moment that pushed me to more radical healing. Um, and, uh, plant medicine actually. <laughs> it's interesting. There's this, uh, psychiatrist I read. He's dead now, but then died in the early days, frankly. But he talks about in, in the zero to two, if you get the message that acceptance is a gift with all your libidinal rage, this, that, you know, that you, you goes a lot better than if you somehow get the subtle message that acceptance is a reward. Mm. Because if you get that acceptance as a reward, you're always, there's no self-acceptance. There's no. no unconditional, no strings attached love. You're always, and there's just, you're on a treadmill, a hamster wheel. Yeah. You can't get off it. I was like, sort of, I think about it as being really imbalanced because I was very, extremely, um, to the point of cockiness, confident in my intelligence and in my skill as a writer. Basically, as long as it's been possible for me to write, I've just known I was a good writer. And yet it felt as if you took the writing away, there just wouldn't be much left. It, it just felt as, I mean, and now I hear that, that that's ridiculous. And I, I don't think I thought it consciously, but it just, it felt as if I was a, a, a achieving to be worthy of being alive. I'm sorry that that, that that's the brutal struggle. But, but I was, pu- I was pushed to reckon with it uh, in, in a very extreme way. And, and I think, um, had to, to, to reckon with it at, at an even deeper level again with the round of hit pieces that came with the publishing of the book where it's just, it's, it's this, it, it's interesting because, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in what does it mean to be free and in how to start a revolution. I'm looking at what does it mean to be free in this traditional political sense. And on uh, from my personal experiences now, I'm ex- interested in expanding it to just psychologically free and spiritually free. And, um, it, t- it takes constant work, that stuff too. And, um, you know, I've, uh, the, the, you have to be kind of consciously, actively processing. I have found against this voice. Um, like I, I, I really the four agreements really resonates with me, and I try to read it every couple of months. Um, but the, you know, this John Miguel Ruiz puts forth this idea of a parasite of this. This is like kind of combination of of judging criticism, um, and ter- just that that voice that tells you you're not good enough and you suck, and and all of the worst possible conspiracy theories about um, who you are. And I, 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 the the work to untangle that and to choose what information to accept about yourself and to decide who you are is it, it actually takes a ton of energy um, and is what's required for survival. And I think that, and that's moving that you're, you've connected, right? This story of investment in personal freedom, right? And what it means to be free with a vision for the good life for society and increase. Because I feel like very often you have activists that throw themselves into, hey, let's make a more democratic, equal society. But, you know, they're kind of not tending to their own souls. Or you have people mm-hmm. that are very concerned with their own well being, but have a tough time dialing out into a broader, sense of well-being for the world but it seems like you're fighting to keep that stuff integrated i yeah i i'm i'm really inspired by uh angela davis's idea about this this constant work of freedom and the the constant work of freedom in the political sense but i i i i'm i'm just not i'm concerned about how many people are in the state that i was in before because i projected as being so okay (laughs) and i actually I hope that I can, I, I wonder if I'll have, be able to have a even greater impact, um, with, with this version of freedom. Um, because I think that we're all, it's all connected and, um, this idea of goodness becomes a lot less harder to access when you, if you fix your soul first. So, so maybe that, that 
is I, I think that how to start a revolution gives these, you know, like the practical, pragmatic steps to participating in the collective, but that the essential thing is, is finding the love for yourself so that you can share as much love as possible with others and it, it, t- tending to your own soul and, and dealing with your stuff and, 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 and doing that so that you can offer more to the grander whole. Um, it has political implications, but it's just actually feel like this, like this, the basic basis by which we should all be living out of, out of a duty to our, to, to, to love and the interconnected whole. Yeah. And the power of the wounded healer. I mean, I, I you know, I think that to hear you talk about like, it's okay that I'm not okay. Like, it's okay that I'm a work in progress. And I mean, the power of that, I think both, both personally and politically, like for us to also see it's okay that we're a work in progress. Yeah. You know, the, the, the democratic project is, 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 is on the way as, as we're all on the way. And I mean, that's, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I often find like if you show me somebody that has some self acceptance, they're probably going to be easy to deal with no matter what our political views versus show me someone I, I line up with on all the ideas, but that self-loathing and, 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 and really can't accept themselves that, that we're, the collaboration is really hard. Right. I think, it, and I think it's all really connected because the, the, your ability to express yourself authentically and to think critically and to take the risk of saying that something that someone else isn't saying to actually say unique productive things to be vulnerable, to express, to create. There's also then this underlying toxic force that screams and says, you're not good enough. Don't create. And I think it comes from fear. I think it comes from people who, who aren't in touch with their own authentic self, who are too scared to do the things. I mean, like see also Brene Brown, but like, it's just this, 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 there's so many people who are disconnected from thinking critically and, and just saying the safe thing, the pre-approved thing. Um, and, and I feel like it's part of, of being disconnected from our authentic selves. And I think that the way I get the courage to continue going is that I have to keep first affirming um, that that sense of confidence in myself and in my goodness and and in and to affirm my intentions and to to work on untangling all of the ways that the parasite kind of creeps back up and 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 takes new forms even after you kind of scrape it away. Uh, I I'm still working on it though. <laughs> I mean like I also yeah like I I still I I still, you know, definitely will be making future mistakes and I think that I hope to 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 demonstrate that it it is possible to keep going and that the most important thing is is be- the doing your best. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I think that's incredibly moving and I think that's sort of it's interesting cuz this, you know, you, your book is how to start a revolution. I think those ideas are revolutionary as much as the sort of campaign for empowerment and equality, right? I mean, they're, they're revolutionary in intertwined ways, right? Like, because from the sort of sense of self-acceptance will come a desire to, like, accept the other, accept, you know, like, mm-hmm. and these things are, they're, that, that's beautiful the way you, you connect those dots. Because, again, I, it, that's, it's easier said than done, you know, or, or it's often not even said, <laughs> the connecting yeah. of those dots. It's really moving. Well, I think that it comes from this this weird experience of being public and and also trying to wrap my head around being attacked and being dehumanized and 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 what the other trying to have compassion for yeah. that um because i think that the most painful thing actually ha- has been my own anger at the way i've been treated and i had to i'm still letting go of some of that um but i i think that real- it's harder because it's not like these people are you can just go confront them and get i mean like it's this anger that has it this 
amorphous object, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it, it, it's the, it's the commentariat. It's the. Yes. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I actually feel like the, the, one of the most important things I've learned is that it's, um, like, and very important to, to feel pain and to, to like accept that I am angry and to, to accept that I feel that it is unfair. Uh, and, um, uh, because this is my, my resistance to that kind of like turn, you know, turns my blood to carbon to makes my blood carbonated in a way that is causing most of the the toxic takeaway and i i mean i um i i feel as if so it's interesting that you you mentioned that you're a christian earlier um and i uh was was i have had a lot of thoughts about what it means to be good since i was very young because my parents were raised me roman catholic and i was very resentful of it it was authoritarian and i sort of rejected it based on this idea of like God's not an old white man, this guy. That's fake. I have since uh, found God. I, it took me a long time to feel comfortable calling the, the interconnected sense of love and quiet place inside God. And I know there's all kinds of stigma about it. Um, but, and I've actually recently started attending a queer church, which is just one piece of my spirituality, which also includes a bunch of different techniques. Um, but I, I, I think, um, that the Christian idea of, of neighborliness is is something that can be that that was lost in translation in the way that I was taught it, and can also can can be applied to to the 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 this whole interconnected idea of constant freedom and duty to the collective, where there's this very limited idea of of neighborliness that I was taught in the church where I was raised. Where yeah, you you check the box of going to, to church on Christmas, you you make a big ziti for the social justice dinner. You're not rude to anyone ever. You're polite. You're extra extra polite maybe to like the person of color in the supermarket. Like you're big, you know being an extra and get out, but you're not actually participating in in overhauling the structural inequalities. You're not actually taking into consideration the broader scope of your action. And I, what if we thought of of neighborliness as this duty to the collective, as this co- need to participate in who we all are as an interconnected whole? And, and I feel as if the my this I, this I was trying for a very long time to prove that I was good by some secular ethic um, outside of the church, and I think that I have found that the thing that was missing for me is my um, own belief that I am good. And it, it's, it's love always comes from first feeling loved. Yeah. Right? It, it, <laughs> you don't give love when you, you don't have it. I mean, the, the sense of you're accepted, no strings attached is where the, is where the wellspring comes up. Right. Mm-hmm. And once, once that clicked that the, the duty to the collective, I think has become even, even simple and easy. It's not, it's not, it's the only thing that makes any sense. And it, it, it became so much stronger when I learned to love myself. That's revolutionary. And you've written a great book, Lauren, um, how to start a revolution and you're on a great journey. And I, uh, <laughs> I hope to stay in touch. I mean, I, mean, I hope that, yeah, I'm excited to see what unfolds for you and your work. Thank you. Thanks for talking with me for a little bit. Thanks for listening to give and take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful. If you do them, Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. 
And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Lauren for coming on the podcast. Do check out her book, How to Start a Revolution. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.